The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, which is usually translated as concentration. Um, for this series, uh, I called it Gathering the Mind, and this idea that the word concentration doesn't fully, um, doesn't fully express um, kind of the richness of samadhi. Um, In the, in the Buddha's teaching, uh, quite often uh, there is a lot of imagery, a lot of um, similes and metaphors and an- analogies. And it is a little interesting to think about why that is. Um, this talk tonight has a lot of them. And it's, uh, you know, we'll see how far we get and (laughs) how it goes. Um, But in a way, it's like to describe something that may be unfamiliar, it's helpful to describe it in terms of something that is familiar. And so, you know, it's like if you're trying to describe to someone who's uh, who's never eaten an apple, you know, what does an apple taste like? You can say, well, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's crunchy, it's a little sweet, it has a little tanginess or, you know, it's kind of, it's okay, you know, kind of, but that doesn't really approach what the taste of an apple is like. You say, well, it's sort of like a pear, you know, it's kind of going like that. So in, in a way, uh, these teachings tonight have this have this quality of uh, you know of of course the purpose is so so we can all have the experience for ourselves of of, of tasting the apple and um, so so with that as a little introduction uh, one of the images that always speaks to me and uh, I feel has been I can relate to it about my own practice is this idea of a farmer who's digging a well and you know he's looking for water so, you know he has his land and he's looking for water so he, he finds a spot that it seems to be promising and then starts to do the work of digging and so it's digging you know one foot two feet, three feet, you know, it keeps going, four feet, five feet, six feet. You know, it gets down to 10 feet, maybe to 15 feet, maybe to 20 feet. And then starts getting a little discouraged. You know, there's no water. He says, you know, well, well, maybe this is the wrong spot. You know, so he moves over to another spot in the land. It looks, starts to look a little more promising. Okay, so it starts digging again. So one feet, Five feet, ten feet, fifteen feet. Okay, no water. Well, let's try another spot. I mean, there's got to be water somewhere here. I've heard this water. Another spot. Start digging again. You know, little by little, it gets to five feet, ten feet, twenty feet. Again, no water. It starts getting a little frustrated. (laughs) You know, starts, you know, maybe try another place. Or maybe you give up. You know, and, you know, maybe it so happens that there was water, but it's just the 21 feet. <laughs> and so digging 10 holes of 20 feet each is, um, you, know, it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a shame. I mean, there's, <laughs> and, and I can relate, you know, I always feel there's a poignancy in that you know, of like, um, not letting ourselves go deep enough in one thing. And, you know, so we start one thing and that's, you know, when it seems okay and we kind of have a lot of energy for it and then it slowly starts to peter out. And then um, what often happens is all these doubts rush in. And, and so this story is an illustration of the hindrance of the, the kind of the, 
the difficulty of the uh, the obstacle of the mental factor of doubt. It's usually, you know, so we start to get these doubts of like this isn't the right thing, or I'm not doing it right, or it's not the right. And then, you know, so maybe it's not meditation, or maybe it's not vipassana, maybe it's Zen, or maybe it's Tibetan, or maybe it's maybe it is vipassana, but it's not this place, or it's not this teacher, or it's not this, you know. And, or maybe it is this place, but it's not the breath. The breath is just not my thing. I can't work with the breath. I have to do, you know, I have to find a different thing. You know, so all these doubts come in. And um, samadhi is sometimes described as the deepening process. It's the into the depths of meditation. You know, so often our mind is at a certain kind of surface level and uh, and that makes sense because we're we're in the world, we're relating to people, where we have different roles, where um, we have to somehow operate at the speed of the world. And then when we sit down to meditate, it's like there's still all that momentum, you know, of that of of just the conversations and the thoughts and the energy of what happened today, let alone you know yesterday and the day before and any worries and concerns and. And things. So to let ourselves find the depth of, of this practice is a great gift. And there will be a lot of doubts and a lot of, you know, to say that, you know, I can't do it. Or this is, you know, it's like, you know, there's, it takes so many different forms. And it's like, I, you know, there have been times when when I was working on this very practice of, of samadhi on a longer retreat and many strong and difficult emotions were coming up and I went into the teacher and, you know, it was maybe two or two, a week or two into a four-week retreat and I said to the teacher, I don't think I should be doing this practice. It's not good for me. It doesn't feel right. There's something, you know, and she just got a big smile came across her face and I thought like, you know, that's strange. And, uh, and she just looked at me and she said, doubt. <laughs> you know, and she just named this, this hindrance that she was seeing. And in that moment, you know, the naming of it and the kind of taking it away from this personal realm of inside the stories and the, the thinking and the emotion and to just, she's like, oh, you're having doubt. And it's like, oh, this is doubt. It was like, this is just doubt. And it was so freeing in a way to be able to relate to, relate to what was happening. Say it wasn't me. It wasn't mine. It wasn't personal. It was just doubt. You know, everyone has doubt sometimes. You know, doubt is something that comes. It's something that goes. And, um, but doubt is is a really tricky hindrance. You know, so last week we talked about these five classical forces of distraction in the mind, which are called the hindrances. Desire, uh, ill will or aversion. You know, you want it, you don't want it. Sometimes it's called greed and hate, greed and anger, or greed and... You know, so you want it, you reach for it, or you don't want it. That's, those are the first two. And then there's sloth and torpor and restlessness. Too little energy, too much energy. And then the fifth one is doubt. And doubt is sometimes uh, considered the most dangerous of the hindrance. The reason is when we don't recognize it as doubt, we start to believe it. And it can cause us to give up our practice, to stop practicing you know, mind gets filled with all these things. And, and the other problem with doubt or the other danger with doubt is doubt masquerades as wisdom. You know, I really shouldn't be, you know, this really isn't good for me. I really shouldn't be doing this. You know, and that's what was happening with me. And the teacher just, you know, could immediately point it out. Um, you know, so in a way, so this, you know, digging a hole... Um, <laughs> you know, are we digging a lot of shallow holes or, you know, can we um, see through the doubts, 
see through the difficulties to to let ourselves go deep, you know, in one place. And um, so that, in a way, is the request of samadhi. It's it's uh, finding a way to relate to these forces of distraction so that they don't um, they lose their power over us. And the way we do that is, you know, the, the basic way is through mindfulness, through seeing them over and over and over again. Like I said last week, it's this, you know, when you're driving and there's a turnoff that looks seductive. And, um, you know, so we turn off and we go down it and then we say, oh, it's a dead end. And we have to turn around and go back. And that's a kind of an illustration of this process of the wandering mind. Or, you know, there's a story, there's a uh, memory, there's a fantasy, there's a concern that's seductive. You know, it starts to, it has a hook for us. You know, we all have hooks and, you know, magnets or something, and these stories pull us. But once we've seen it, you know, it may take a thousand times to go down that road. Then the thousand and first time it comes up and we, we just can, we can stick a dead end sticker on it. And we're like, no, I don't need to, you know, I see, oh yeah, yeah. We just keep going. And so in the samadhi practice, we just keep going. We stay with our, um, sometimes it's called the anchor. You know, so in vipassana practice, we often say, um, I mean, it's a little bit of a funny thing to say, but we often say there, there are no distractions in vipassana, right? Because you can be mindful of anything. You can be mindful of a memory or a fantasy or a strong emotion. Or a, and if, it's, if you're with the breath and then something really strong emotion comes up, you can turn the mind towards that emotion and be mindful of it and work with it and learn from it. And it's all part of mindfulness practice. So there's nothing that isn't included in mindfulness. So in a way, that's the way we usually teach the vipassana. And then with samadhi practice, the, you know, there's a certain intention with staying with a primary object and letting the mind, the heart get trained on that. You know, so, so we talked about polishing the mind on the breath. It's like uh, to train a puppy, there's some limitation. You know, we have a leash. We have a certain bounded area. And so the mind is like that. So, you know, the, the way I've been talking in the classical, one of the classical objects is the breath. So the breath is our anchor. And then there would be many forces of distraction that take us away from our anchor. And then, so it could be you notice it and you come back in a second. Or it could be in 10 seconds, or it could be 10 minutes, or it could be the whole sitting, you know, just off. And then it's like the bell rings, like, oh yeah, the breath, you know. And, but, and the principle is every time we come back to the anchor, every time we come back to the breath, we're strengthening this capacity of the mind to stay, to stay with the breath. So, um, what I want to talk about tonight is three levels of samadhi. And um, this is a little bit of a map of what the terrain of the samadhi can look like. So, you know, just to just to listen with that idea of, of letting it kind of, you know, pass through or soak in without uh, feeling like it's a kind of prescription of like, this is what should be happening or this is what will be happening or it's kind of one model of the way samadhi practice can unfold. And for some people, it's very, very helpful to have, you know, an idea of a, of, of a map. You know, it's reassuring. It's, you know, it's like, yeah, there is, 
uh, a well-mapped terrain. And for, so, for, so for some people, it's very helpful to hear this kind of information because it, it increases their confidence, increases their faith. It's like, okay, great. You know, you know, there's, you know, there is a progression. There is, uh, there are instructions and, um, this is safe, you know, something like that. It's not this total unknown. And, uh, there are people who can help me and guide me and, um, There's a, you know, this is a little bit of an aside, but there's, you know, if you remember the children's television host, uh, Mr. Rogers, you know, my, my daughter is like that age, so I kind of show her some of the old shows. And, and he has this song, which is, you know, I like to be told. You know, I like to be told what's going to happen. And, the, and, there's, and that's, that's quite a, an important thing, I think, for children, you know, to, be, to not have a lot of unknowns, to you know, okay, I know what's going to happen. I, you know, so routine is very important for children. And and so this is interesting because one of the ways that meditation centers run, that retreats run, that uh, someone who is dedicated, you know, like a monk or a monastic or a kind of full-time meditator, whatever that means, Routine and ritual is very, very important. And it's said for samadhi practice, routine is very important. You know, so not only to arrange one's life in a way that, you know, ethical concerns are largely resolved, life is simplified somehow in a way that we're not really stressed and distracted, but we have a routine every time we meditate. We, you know, first we tidy up our room. We maybe take a bath, you know, a shower, a bath. We sit in the same place. We do the, you know, so there's certain kinds of routines which are said to be very helpful for samadhi practice. Uh, that's a little bit of an aside. So for some people, it's helpful to, to know the map. And for some people, it's not that helpful because it can um, stir up a lot of extra thinking of, oh, I mean, it could, it, could, it, could, it could stir up a lot of wanting in the mind. It can, you know, if I want to have those experiences. I want to experience those states. And, you know, why, you know, and then frustration. I'm not experiencing now. There's a, there's a difference in, you know, um, my own experience doesn't map onto this. And what's going on? And, you know, or the, the, these doubts come up. So to, just to watch the mind. You know, and we'll both, you know, and we'll experience both of these different times. Um, but these kinds of, of states of samadhi, deeper states of samadhi, can be a source for a lot of suffering for meditators. You know, going on retreats and having, either having a taste of them and trying to recreate that, or, you know, or wanting to go into those and not being able to, or comparing, uh, you know, one's experience to someone else's experience. So there's just such a range. So just to look at the mind can be very helpful. Um, so, the, so the three levels of, of samadhi, the, the first one I've kind of talked about, which is called uh, parikama samadhi, which is usually translated as preliminary samadhi. This is the mind of our, you know, everyday consciousness where we come in, we sit down to meditate and we're working with these forces of distraction. We're working with greed and aversion. We're working with restlessness. We're working with uh, dullness, laziness, low energy. We're working with doubts. And, uh, you know, so that's where, where most of us are most of the time. And so last week I talked about a bunch of strategies for working with those, so I won't go into that in too much depth, except to say that um, clarifying our intention and really giving ourselves over to the breath, for example, there's this kind of, um, some teachers describe it as falling in love with the breath, you know, 
to overcome these forces of distraction, these forces which pull us away, to really generate, to arouse interest, curiosity in the breath. You know, in, in, in the guided meditation, we'll go into this a little bit more, but seeing if there's a way that the breath can be more pleasurable, more enjoyable. There's something about joy, which we'll, which we'll, we'll get to in this talk. There's something about joy that um, helps us. You know, it, it's like this merging with the breath. You know, so for samadhi practice, this it's a process of... Um, process of unification, a process of merging. And so this is the active part. This is the kind of the intention of really staying with it and of finding enjoyment, whatever it takes, you know, to stay with it, to get interested in it. it, Letting our interest in the breath be stronger than our interest in the content of our thoughts. You know, so it's, and it's a training and it takes a lot of patience. So, so to move from parikama samadhi to this next level of samadhi, for most, medita- most meditators, for most practitioners, takes years. I mean, it's, it's years and years of practice. It's not like days and days of practice or weeks and weeks. So this is a kind of, you know, and, and for many meditators, uh, it's extremely helpful to ex- go to explore this territory in depth on, on meditation retreats because the, the conditions are set up for silence, for seclusion, for stillness. Um, everything is set up to be able to let go of a lot of the surface concerns. And then once you've gone on a few retreats, then it's much easier in daily practice to kind of, you know, you kind of know, you know the way in. And that, that kind of, that trench has been dug. And then, you know, so in, in daily life, it's much, it's just covered over with leaves. It's not really, you don't have to do the heavy, heavy lifting. So um, that's, uh, that's a preliminary, the preliminary concentration. So as we, you know, this process of falling in love with the breath. Um, what happens is that um, these five hindrances, these five forces of distraction, start to be, in a way, met by five other mental factors. You know, convenient, right? You know, the five the five forces of distraction start to be met by the five mental factors of, of, of absorption. You know, the, so that's usually translated as the factors of absorption or the jhanic factors. These are five factors which are said to be, in a way, antidotes to the five hindrances. And, and just to say... The five jhanic factors, these kind of positive, you know, like the opposite of the hindrances, we could say. If the hindrances are these obstacles to concentration, the five jhanic factors are the like the ingredients of concentration. They're the constituents that make up samadhi. And they're not something that we really do with the exception a little bit of the first two, but they are said to just arise, you know, so through continuous contact, staying with the breath, counting the breath, um, uh, letting everything be very simple and just staying here. This quality of undistractedness, you know, translating samadhi as undistractedness, this quality of undistractedness starts to grow. It starts to deepen. And, um, you know, it's a process that happens. We don't have to do it. 
And in a way, we can't do it because if there's a, if there's a Max or a you who's doing it, that, you know, that keeps us from giving over to it. That keeps us from merging. You know, so it's like when there, you know, it's like when you're so immersed in an activity that you know well, that your body, know, you know, if you're, if you're a tennis player and you know how to serve and you know how to play, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to consciously, it's like something else takes over. And so this, that's that quality of, you know, over and over we've done this, something else takes over. So these five jhanic factors emerge and they, in a way, take care of, or you could say they, they uh, suppress is a little bit of a loaded word, but they, they uh, vanquish, in a way, these five hindrances. And so, so the five factors of absorption are, we talked about the first two actually, but I didn't, I didn't name them as that. When I, we talked about connecting and sustaining, you know, touching and polishing, those are the first two. And then the third one is usually translated as joy or sometimes rapture, you know, this kind of a physical embodied some, it can be an ecstatic kind of joy. The Pali word is piti. And uh, so that's the third. The fourth is sukha, which is uh, usually translated as happiness, but a kind of mental happiness. Um, it's, it's a kind of happiness which is co- very cooled out, very peaceful. And then the fifth is the Pali word is ekagata, which is unification of mind or one-pointedness of mind. So connecting and sustaining, sometimes it's called initial application of attention. So it's initial application to the object, to the breath, and then sustained application, this rubbing, this polishing, this uh, staying. Through those this quality of physical and mental happiness, physical joy and mental happiness are uh, generated and, and then this one-pointedness of mind. So uh, when those, so, so just to say in, in the commentaries, in the teachings and the commentaries, these five jhanic factors are mapped specifically to the five hindrances. And if I can remember them, it's, um, so connecting is, actually I'm gonna look because I can. Okay, so connecting is, is said to counteract the forces of sloth and torpor. This is the, the hindrance of usually translated as dullness, laziness. And you can think, I mean, it makes sense in a way because connecting, every time we connect to the breath, you know, our intention is to sit down and be with the breath. And then, you know, we, we just, wand, the mind wanders away. And then every time we come back and, oh yeah, right, the breath. And just gently connect to the breath. There's a certain energetic quality to that. So that energetic quality of connecting counteracts dullness, laziness, sloth sloth and torpor. Then uh, sustaining, rubbing, polishing is said to counteract the force of doubt. Um, And you know, if you think about why this might be, doubt is always involves thinking, you know, and when the mind, when the attention is not only connected to the breath, but is rubbing the breath, is polishing the breath, is continuously connected to the breath, um, 
it has this quality of crowding out thoughts. One of my teachers in Japan talks about being with each breath as though you're laying roof tiles. I've never laid roof, ti- roof tiles. <laughs> But you know, the idea is that you don't want to let any water in. So they're just one is right after the other. There, there's no gap. So when you're with each breath, so there's no gap, there's no room for doubt. There's no room for doubt as kind of a weed to come up. So, anyway, that's, that's, so that's connecting and sustaining. The, the factor of joy, of pity,、um, is said to counteract the hindrance of ill will, of aversion. And that makes sense. You know,、um, The quality of pity is, is not. Like kind of ordinary, you know, the, I think the word rapture is a little bit of an old fashioned word, but it kind of approaches it.、It's, it has an energetic quality which is,、um, it, sometimes it's described as, you know, el- electricity, as. Uh, it could be as, 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 as calm as pins and needles, or it could be it's like your whole body is lit up on fire. Or,、um, you know, one student、uh, came in and described something which seemed like a 45 minute full body orgasm. That's what, that's what they said. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, that sounds pretty good. And, and that was the. You know, that you know, often people describe not everyone, and it unfolds in different ways for different people. And so, you know, I haven't experienced that particular <laughs> you know, form of pity, but it, it, you know, it, there are,、um, there's, there, there's a range. But just to give you a sense of like the power of the mind going, unifying within itself. This is a joy which is not related to any kind of sensory input. You know, it's not a great feeling of taste, of smell, of touch, nothing like that. This is all from the mind. You know, so it's very interesting. It's, it's just from the mind, just from that continuous, you know, that friction, that heat that comes. So that's pity. Sukha.、Um, Happiness, this kind of mental, cooled out happiness, is said to counteract、uh, restlessness and remorse and worry and agitation. So, this is a kind of happiness which is very calm, it's very peaceful.、Um, it's,、um, you know, so the pity, what I described before, has the quality of excitement. You know, it's, it's, it's energized. The sukha. Is calmed. You know, it's like, it's calmed down.、Um, you know, so it's this kind of,、um, it's close to equanimity. And you could see how the calming quality of, of sukha, of the happiness, settles restlessness, settles anxiety.、Um, and then the fifth jhanic factor, which is ekagata, one pointedness of mind.、Um, Has the、uh, function of counteracting sensual desire.、Um, I don't know exactly why, you know, but I, I would imagine, you know, one, you know, you could kind of come up with your own theory, but it's like when the mind is very unified and one pointed,、um, you know. Desire, the force of desire is always about something outside of ourselves. We desire something. Desire has an object. And so, this quality of one pointedness is,、um, is letting the mind focus within, unified on one thing. So, it's a kind of sing- singularity, sing- singularness, whereas desire is about going outside. It's going about more. So, You know, so it's interesting. So it's like, so, so this 
when, so when these, these five jhanic factors are, are, are present, are, are strong, and the five hindrances are absent, then it's said to be in the second level of samadhi, which is called um, upakara samadhi, which is usually translated as access samadhi, or sometimes as neighborhood samadhi or threshold samadhi. At this, um, when the mind is in this state, it's at the doorway, you know, so you could say it's at the doorway to um, another mental world. Very interesting, you know, and it's a, and just to kind of, you know, again, to just watch the mind and watch, you know, you know, for some people, this is like, what, you know, what, you know, this is totally out there. For some people, it's like, oh, you know, you could kind of have an intuition of, you know, yeah, there, you know, there's a familiarity to this, or it makes sense, or there's something, you know, so just watch what the mind, how it lands. And in a way, for most of us, it's like this is just planting seeds. You know, it's just, So this is upakar samadhi, access samadhi. The mind at this, um, in this stage of samadhi is very soft, very flexible, very malleable. Because the hindrances are absent, it's quite easy to sit. You could sit for a long time. You know, if you're used to sitting for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you could sit for an hour or, or longer and there's no physical pain or very little. There's very little extra thought that pulls you away. So it's very pleasant. It's very enjoyable. Um, and so at this stage, uh, some teachers will uh, give instructions to help the meditator, to help the student uh, consciously kind of uh, strengthen these jhanic factors. And there are practices that you can do that, um, you know, so if there's, if there's a kind of physical joy, this pity, to let that pity grow, to let it spread through the body, let the the happiness, the mental happiness, let that spread. Um, uh, So there there are various ways of exploring these jhanic factors at this level of access samadhi, access concentration. Um, As access concentration, access samadhi matures, these jhanic factors uh, arise strongly and once they arise strongly and in, ba- and in balance with each other, uh, there can be another shift. You know, it's like they come together in a way that is, it's, it's not our doing, you know, but they get stronger and the movement is that they come together and um, the mind sh- can shift into an even deeper samadhi, an even deeper absorption, uh, which, is, which is translated as apana samadhi. Um, it's also called the, the jhana, you know, jhanic states of absorption. And um, these are states of very uh, deep seclusion, deep peacefulness, the mind is totally, it's like the turtle and the arm, the, the four legs and the head and the tail, and everything is in the shell. It's like everything comes in. And so jhana, absorption, is a term that encompasses a wide range of experiences and different teachers and different traditions have different ways of understanding it, have different ways of teaching it. You know, 
Um, so for some teachers, it's not so different from this kind of access samadhi. The jhanic factors are there, they're stronger, they're very, you know, especially in the beginning stages of jhana, they're present, but they're still thinking, there could still be thinking, there could still be perception of sound and outside things in, in a very with muffled way. For other teachers, uh, jhana is defined by there's no sense of the body, there's no ability to hear noises. So if you've ever heard stories or seen meditators who just kind of can't be roused, and you're like, hey, 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 and they're, they're so withdrawn and they're so deep in that, absor- so absorbed. You know, so that might be a kind of state of, of jhana. Um, but, but they're considered by most meditators who experience an extremely uh, deeply, deeply satisfying and deeply peaceful states. Um, and uh, they they are said to have their own benefits of, of, of being a very healing. The a feeling is a very healing and very peacefulness. One of the images of jhana is being, uh, you know, so the number of water images of being in a clear, still lake that's fed by a, a stream, a cool stream that's feeding the lake. Or... Um, dry soap powder or dry flour that's being suffused with water and kneaded in this kind of, or at the, into the, you know, so the jhanas are, you know, there are four, so it's have four distinct levels of absorption. And at the fourth jhana, it's described as this clean, pure white cloth that the mind is wrapped in. So there's, you can kind of imagine this very, if there's a healing quality because while we're within the absorption, we're not experiencing the world of suffering. We're not experiencing the world of change. We're not experiencing this aching, you know, decaying <laughs> body. And we're not experiencing these distressing, um, agitating thoughts. We're just, we're, we're secluded from that. And so to have a, a rest, to let the mind rest from the constant ceaseless change, which is what characterizes, you know, the realm of being a human being, um, is, is, is experienced as extremely um, restful, healing, and peaceful. And so there's a way that that the experience of that merging and that peacefulness, uh, it has the potential to um, change our conditioning. You know, so we often talk about um, vipassana practice, mindfulness practice, wisdom practice as a way of seeing through conditioning. You know, we just, we see, you know, wisdom is just seeing. It's all, it's all conditioned. It's all, it's not me. It's all just changing. It's not self. It's trans, uh, transitory. Um, You know, so we can see that in a deep way. That's wisdom. That's vipassana. Um, And through seeing the change, we can let go. Um, We don't take it so personally. The samadhi practice is very interesting. It's like it has the, in a way, it has the, in itself, it's said it, it's not going to bring the kind of vipassana wisdom. It's the ground for wisdom. It's the kind of soil that wisdom can grow out of. But in itself, you know, because, because we're withdrawn from the world of change, we, we, don't, we don't see the change. But in a way, experiencing that healing can give us a taste of, of something else which can transform our conditioning. If we've always understood ourselves to be a certain way, to experience my own mind is not as a source of suffering, but as a source of the deepest 
peace and happiness and tranquility and a kind of sublime ease, you know, that in a way can change how I see myself and how I relate to other people. And so it has a lot of benefit in just going into those. So it's said that's where the mind can rest in these states. And, um, and so they're healing. They can kind of change our conditioning. And then they're the ground for wisdom. So, th- so those are kind of the, the benefits of these absorptions. Um, in our scene in, um, in the Western insight tradition for many years, uh, jhana practice was not taught by teaching. You know, this is so great. Why isn't it, you know, why aren't, why aren't the teachers talking about it? Why are they teaching it? And, um, that's the pendulum has kind of shifted. So now it is being taught more, but the thinking behind, um, you know, so some teachers don't talk about these states and the thinking is that it's very easy for students, for meditators to, um, either become attached to the states themselves or become attached to the idea of these states. And so a lot of suffering can, can arise around, uh, you know, around the teachings of this. So it's a, it's a territory to be careful with. And, um, you know, so can we relate to them skillfully is, is the idea. And knowing that they're out there or, or <laughs> in here, you know. Um, but, you know, as we said, they, it takes a lot of training and a lot of sitting usually to approach these. So um, letting it be very, very okay to be wherever we are. We always start where we are. And every, you know, every teacher, every historical teacher, every contemporary teacher has struggled with the hindrances and has found a way of working with them and deepening and, you know, and staying with that, looking for that water and staying in that one well. So it's like, you know, letting it, let, you know, you know being where we are and, and just impatiently, you know, working there is really key to approaching these. Um, I want to have some time for the, for the guided uh, sit, but just to say in a little bit more about these jhanas there. So the, the Buddha taught the, these, uh, they're called uh, the ru- Rupa jhanas, which is usually translated as the uh, f- uh, form. Rupa is form, so the kind of embodied, the embodied states of absorption, and there are four. You know, one, two, three, four. <laughs> and the idea is that um, there is a progression through these. So. Th- moving from the first jhana to the second, to the third, to the fourth, is a process of more and more stillness, more and more letting go, more and more uh, refined awareness. You know, so it's like moving from something that's coarse to something that's refined. So, and as we move through these states of absorption, these jhanic factors start to themselves drop away one by one. So they were very useful and very helpful in overcoming the hindrances. But then as the mind gets more settled, for example, the qualities of connecting and sustaining, you know, touching and polishing, 
that starts to drop away because there's a kind of um, there's a kind of a doing associated with that. If you know what I mean, it's like to connect and reconnect with the breath over and over. It's, it's, it takes energy. It takes effort. There's a kind of doing. And when the meditation becomes effortless, it's like when that momentum gets going, we can let go of vitaka vichara, connecting, sustaining, because the mind is just there. It's just with the breath. They're just connected already. So that drops away. Then, so those drop away in the second jhana. And the second jhana is characterized by this pity, this rapture, which predominates. And so stay with that for a while. But it's, it's very interesting because at a certain point in the meditation, what seemed to be so enrapturing, enthralling, exciting, pleasurable, this, you know, thunderbolts going through the body and all these things, that starts to become coarse. I mean, it starts to feel like it's too much. It's like, you know, if you've ever, you know, I don't know what a good analogy would be, but like, you know, maybe if you like have a taste of an ice cream or something that's like that's sweet and it tastes really good because it's a hot day and you, you, know, you want something sweet, but like just to eat, you know, a gallon of it, it's like, it's, it's, it's sickeningly sweet. It's too much. You know, it's like something good that was good starts to become unpleasant. And that's how, as the mind gets more settled, this quality of rapture, of, of, of embodied joy, of, of, of you know, this ecstasy starts to become unpleasant. So the mind drops it and then settles into you know, for the third jhana, which is characterized by this sukha, this really peaceful, tranquil happiness that's um, cool. You know, it's cooled out. And then, even that happiness, you know, the mind becomes so still, uh, so uh, balanced and easeful and equanimous that even that happiness is extra and that happiness falls away. And what there's just left is said in the fourth jhana is said to be a kind of purity of mind with um, the predominant quality is uh, this ekagata, this one-pointedness, this unification, and uh, equanimity. So just this balance, this ease. Um, And, and so to move through in through those states of absorption, there's just, they themselves are states of letting go. You know, as you see, just letting go of everything that's extra. And you just start to settle more and more and let go more and more. Um, Does anyone have any questions about those? You know, so those are three, three stages or three levels of samadhi. Um, I mean, there's a lot to, to, to say about them and it's hard to know what's helpful, what's... Go ahead, you can, if you wait for the mic, it'll be... Uh... Thank you. So the, um, the three stages of samadhi you, you described to start with do you do you get a glimpse of the second one like do you start getting glimpses of it and then it kind of becomes more sustained or is it something that kind of you almost transition into and then you're you're there if that makes sense did everyone hear the question do you get a glimpse of them in a city so you know it's very interesting that um even though the teachings are, are described in a kind of very, you know, step, you know, there's this and then this, and there's kind of a neat little outline with Roman numerals, and it's not, it's not linear. 
um, necessarily. And so it's not uncommon for even someone who's re- real, you know, who's meditating for the first time or the second time to almost drop into a kind of state of absorption, you know, briefly, something. And, and um, so it, it's quite possible to get glimpses of it. But it's like... Um, there is a systematic training. And so it's like... Um, even as one goes through the, 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 the path of samadhi, there aren't necessarily clear markers. You know, so it's like you bring an experience to the teacher, for example, in a retreat, and the teacher, you know, there have been times when I've gone in and said, there's this really strange feeling or really intense feeling in the head or really... The teacher was happy and saying, oh, that's joy, that's pity. But it didn't feel like joy. It just felt uncomfortable and intense. And, it's a, and so, you know, so it's very helpful to have a teacher who, can, who knows your practice, who knows what you're doing and can kind of help guide you in a way. But it, it's certainly, you know, w- one of the benefits of, of knowing a little bit about the terrain is you can be like, oh, maybe, you know, with, with an open mind, with a, oh, maybe, maybe that's that, or maybe that, you know. So um, it's quite possible to have glimpses. You know, it's really common. I was wondering, why do we use the breath as the object? Why not just the body? Why not use the body, like just the body sensations, and then it becomes like a free-flowing body? Why not use that as a concentration? Did did everyone hear the question? Is why do we use the breath for samadhi practice, and why not the body? Um, You know, different... um, the breath is just one technique, and it's um, different teachers within our tradition um, have different approaches to samadhi. Um, there's one approach where it's working with the breath in an extremely sharp, focused way, like just at the nostrils. And that's like, you could say, one end of the spectrum. And um, it has certain benefits because it's like, when you make the object of meditation really uh, narrow, it, it kind of develops a certain sharpness of attention. You know, it's not like you're all over the place. You're just, you're really there. That works well for some people. Um, another way of working with the breath is like with the belly. And then that's a little bit of a wider area and, and you know, it's, there's, it's more embodied because there's a great feedback with the tension of the belly. If the belly is tight, you know, you know there's some added tension so you can immediately soften it and, you know, you stay with the soft. So that's a little more embodied. Some teachers teach working with the breath in a whole body way. So that's the way that I would, you know, just to say the body, it's... Um, it's, it's, possible, it's very possible to deepen samadhi with just to say a mindfulness of the body. I mean, mindfulness of the, the breath is a kind of, because the breath is in the body, it's, it's, it's included in mindfulness of the body. But um, usually with samadhi, it's helpful to be a little more focused than just a very general. But um, some people work with the whole body breathing. And I don't have that much experience with that myself. But people love it, and if you know, it's kind of like letting the whole body breathe, and uh, or following the breath down and back. Um, I meant more like the body sensations, not exactly the breath flowing through the body, but just feeling every part of the body. Just every yeah, just like well, there's there's a, like you mean like a body, body scan? scan? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a common if you've. You know, the Goenka, yeah. uh, Goenka style is he teaches a body scan. Mm. 
you know, and systematically going through the body. It's a, I've, I did years of that practice, a wonderful practice. One of the things, if you notice on the Goenka retreats, they te- it's a 10-day retreat, and they tend to do the first, I think it's the first three days, three days. is at the breath. Yeah. And so the idea is like this really develop the samadhi at the breath, I mean at the, at the nostrils. Mm. And because there's this, it helps this, this jhanic factor of one-pointedness, basically, you know. And then they start to do vipassana with the body scan, you know. So it just lends itself, different techniques lend themselves to different mental factors. Not to say that samadhi won't deepen with the body scan, because it will, it certainly will. So. Thank you. Max, you mentioned that um, it can be a few retreats that you have to go through before you start to get in a groove to be able to be at ease. Um, just in case there's anyone else in this room who is as remedial as I am, I want to mention for their benefit that it wasn't uh, until I was on about my eighth retreat that I was even able to apply sustained effort. Thank you. And it was great. But, and it wasn't until about my 12th retreat that really felt a lot of ease. So, um, you know, people are different. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you very much for saying that. And it's, it's, it's a little, e- it's easy to get, um, a, yeah, a wrong impression in a way of like that, it's this is this is takes a lot of patience and a lot of um you know i do know meditators who access these states of samadhi without going on retreats but in a way it's like they've arranged their life is like a retreat you know so they're not working that much they don't have like four or five young children you know <laughs> in their house and you know they're and you know so they have a really steady daily practice. And so there are different ways to do it, but retreats are like, you know, retreats are samadhi, I don't want to say they're samadhi factories, but they're like samadhi um, um, gardens of samadhi or something, I don't know. That, you know. And then, and then you know, and there's also the other side of where after you've done 12 retreats or 20 retreats, and you start to get a taste of samadhi, there's this phenomenon of like, sometimes it's called the samadhi junkie, of like, you know, I've got to get my fix of like, you know, going back on retreat and just get calm and get, you know, and get, get away from all these people who are pissing me off. And, you know, and just like, okay, you know, and you get there and you, you know, and you get in your groove and you do it and then, but there are people on retreat who start to piss you off, <laughs> you know, and then it's, it's very interesting. And then it's like a sign to bring in the vipassana, bring in the wisdom. Because it's like samadhi itself, the jhana itself, these are conditioned states, right? You know, they're not the goal, the ultimate goal in a way of Buddhist practice. Um, they're extremely helpful. They can be helpful, and beautiful. But again, they're also conditioned. You know, they come together through causes and conditions. And um, so they're, in a way, yet another thing to let go of. Another thing to see, to see through, to see that they themselves are impermanent. Um, so, so I'm aware of the time, but maybe we can just sit for a few minutes and just... Uh, <laughs> Let the words float away. Um, You know, as we've said in the previous weeks, just the the importance of being comfortable when you do this practice. The breath, the sensations of breathing take place within the framework of the body. So just, just connecting to the body. 
Get a few deep breaths and just feeling the body from the inside. Letting whatever sensations of breath that are there, just letting them calm the body. It's like sinking and rooting into the earth. letting the earth hold you up. And the joy, the pity that we talked about, this rapture, it comes from the joy, the interest of being with the breath quality of interest, curiosity, just polishing each breath. It's like a tile. It's like letting the whole body float on the rhythm of the breath. ease and well-being is always available to us. The wonderful thing about these absorptions is that they require nothing outside of ourselves. It's all right here. And it just takes our willingness to let go of the distractions. Give over to the breath. Falling in love with the breath. be nourished and healed and liberated through this wonderful quality of simply connecting polishing <coughs> Thank you very much Thank you for your attention.